Good morning, friend. My name is George Hinman. I'm the senior pastor here. And we have a beautiful autumn day in Seattle, and it's a gift to be able to worship Jesus together with you. I would invite you to open up your Bible to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. This is where we find the Ten Commandments, or ten words, as the Bible refers to them. Uh, today we're coming to the eighth of those words, uh, which is in verse 15. And I would invite you to read aloud uh, or silently as we read God's word to together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Let's pray. God, you give us the assurance that your word never returns to you empty, but always accomplishes the purpose for, for which you sent it. So we bow ourselves before our Savior, Jesus Christ, the living word, and ask that through your spirit you would speak to each of us in the way that we need to hear today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when Ann and I were in our first year of marriage, we had a ministry to university students in New Jersey. Uh, we were serving the students that were working along the boardwalk in Wildwood, New Jersey. And one night we came back to our little one-room apartment underneath the stairs and the door pushed open. It was unlocked. And as we went in, everything was overturned. Things were thrown all over the place. There was a hole in the screen and a little bit of, of blood. We'd been robbed. Someone had stolen from us. We didn't care about much uh, that we had in that, but we did have a, a, a string of pearls that I had given Anne on our wedding night, and they were gone. It was crushing. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever had someone, something stolen from you, but I wonder what that felt like to you. Go ahead and put it in the chat. Uh, what did that feel like? For us, there was this sense of loss and violation and distrust. Actually, we, through some great community policing and the prayers of our team, those pearls were recovered a few days later. But as we walked around town, we started to distrust people. We were looking at people going, is this person safe? Could it have been them? You know? and, and, and that's not a good feeling. God wants his people to live with trust. In fact, God has gathered a people at the foot of Mount Sinai in order to invite them to build a community, a society that trusts him and that trusts one another. And so he gives them this commandment, you shall not steal, because he wants to give them the gift of trust in their relationships with one another. It helps to remember where these people have come from. They've come from Egypt where they were slaves and everything had been stolen from them. Their homes, uh, their labor, their children, they had a sense of loss and violation and distrust. They don't know if they trust Moses. They don't know if they trust God. They don't know if they can trust one another. And yet God says, you can trust me. You can trust me and you can let me teach you how to trust one another. It's interesting that we come to this text on election week in America. Many of us are feeling some of these similar emotions loss, violation, distrust. We don't know, who are you voting for? Um, we look at someone who's not wearing a mask. We think, is that person safe? Uh, 
yeah, I'm seeing that some of you have been burglarized as well, and there was a sense of violation and trauma. And we feel that in our culture right now as we wait for Tuesday and the results. I wonder if we need to receive the gift of trust as well. I wonder if we need to hear this eighth word that God gave ancient Israel. I'd like to share it with you and to teach you a little bit about that word in its original context by using a story. Uh, the story of Joseph, which happens to be one of my favorite stories in the Bible, as a kind of a case study. Because Joseph is the story that precedes the Exodus. So it's on the minds of the reader if you read consecutively. But also, Joseph's story has a twist at the end where he actually puts something of value in the bags of his brothers. They don't know it. So that he can accuse them of stealing so that he can accuse them of breaking the Eighth Commandment. I'll give you a sense of why that would be as we go through the story. But the story of Joseph teaches us that those of us who want to be trust builders must move through four phases. And I want to discuss these with you. Bitterness, obedience, service, and worship. These are phases that we all uh, want to go through. And you might ask yourself, which one am I in right now? Bitterness, obedience, service, and worship. So let's go. The first phase for trust builders is bitterness. Because this is what breaks trust in the first place. Our own experience of bitterness. You may remember the story. Joseph, his brothers stole his coat. They were probably thinking, gosh, dad gave Joseph this great coat. He's the only one who got it. Seems to favor him. It's like he's taking something from me. I'm an older brother. Maybe he's taking my birthright, my privilege uh, and what they do then, these brothers, is they try to even the score. They steal his coat, and they steal his freedom. They throw him in a hole, and then some traders come from Egypt, and they sell their brother Joseph into slavery. You shall not steal, says the eighth word. Now, the word steal in Hebrew suggests something beneath the surface, that there's something hiding there's a hiddenness to this offense. You can even hear the similarity between uh, steel and stealth uh, that there is in the Hebrew as well. There's a similarity between those words, stealing and stealth. They're, in the, they're both in the English form of the words and also in the Hebrew forms. It, it, so in Hebrew as well, there's this connotation of hiddenness or secrecy. Uh, one scholar defines this Hebrew word as to take that which belongs to another without their consent or knowledge. See, that's the stealth or the secrecy. And it can be anything. It can be stealing stuff, reputation, time, emotional energy. But the point here is that we oftentimes steal out of a sense that something has been stolen from us. Out of a sense of bitterness. The Bible speaks of bitterness as a root, as something that's hidden something that's beneath the surface. Hebrews 12, verse 15 says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. So, so bitterness is like a root growing beneath the surface in our hearts. Uh, toxic, bitter, and it bears fruit, causes trouble, the writer says, in our relationships. The antidote to the bitterness in our hearts is grace. This is what the 
uh, writer of Hebrews tells us as the verse continues. He says uh, in verse 12, 15a, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God so that bitterness won't spring up. So that's the antidote to, to grace. It's, it's God's, uh, the antidote to bitterness is God's grace. When we're angry, the Lord says to us, bring that to me, will you? Bring me your hurt. Bring me your wound. Oh, my son knows all about grief and loss and betrayal. Bring your hurt to him and I will heal it. This is the work of phase one. It's it's wrestling with God's grace in the face of our bitterness. We might not even know that we carry bitterness in our hearts. It's, it's there, but it's stealthy. It's sometimes secret. It's below the surface. We may notice it in our anger. It's so easy right now to feel angry just at the slightest provocation. We would lash out at someone that we care about or we bring our work stress home. When we feel anger, we can ask ourselves, well, what's beneath that? What am I feeling? Is there a sense that something is or has been stolen from me? How could I bring that to Jesus? Can I give it away? Is this something that I can afford to live without? How can his grace heal and compensate for that loss? This is the work of phase one. It's so easy now to cause trouble out of our unrecognized bitterness to vilify those who are on the other side of the aisle or may vote differently than we do. Many of us today feel like something's been stolen from us or we're afraid that that somebody will steal something from us. Joseph's a good example for us. He could feel uh, the bitterness, but he wrestled with it. He struggled with it. He could have gone like his brothers and said, this isn't fair, I'm not getting good treatment, they're taking something that's rightfully mine. But instead, he brings his hurt to God's grace. And he has lots of time to ponder this grace. He's shivering without a coat, tied to a camel caravan. He's on his way to Egypt. And he's about to come into the second phase for trust builders. The second phase for trust builders is obedience. Obedience. In the words of Elvis Costello, in the hour of deception... He describes this moment as an hour of deception. The person you trust is the person who does the right thing. Obedience. Joseph is sold to a general named Potiphar. It's less Potiphar than his wife that we're concerned with here because she proves not to be trustworthy, uh, not trustworthy with respect to her husband or with respect to Joseph. She does whatever is right in her own eyes. She demands that Joseph lie with her over a period of days successively. She, she says, lie with me. And uh, she wants to commit this seventh, uh, uh, disobey the seventh commandment. But Joseph won't do it. He won't steal from this woman. He won't steal from her husband. He says, how can I sin against God? He has a sense of obedience. I want to say that an experience of grace always generates a desire to be obedient to God's word, obedience. You shall not steal, says the eighth word. That word steal is also used in the Bible of deception. 
For example, in Genesis chapter 31, verse 20, we read, Jacob deceived Laban. Now, that's the same word, but, but combined with other words. Literally, if you translated that, that phrase, you'd say, Jacob stole the heart of Laban. It's a theft. Deception is a theft. It's stealing the heart of another. So, there's more than bitterness beneath the surface. Truth also gets hidden in our lives sometimes. We can become deceived, even self-deceived. What is the truth? And who gets to say? When I was in grad school, I sometimes studied at the Harvard Divinity School Library, and they had a stapler on the circulation desk to which somebody had pasted a note that said, stealing is an antisocial act. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny, but, and I hope it was a joke because I'm thinking to myself, man, here, here we are in a divinity school, and that's all we can say? Stealing is an antisocial act? I mean, if we can't, of all places here, say stealing is wrong, where can we? Are our sense of uh, good and bad and right and wrong simply matters of uh, preference? Do we really want to say that global warming, that human trafficking, that anti-black racism are all just matters of preference? I prefer, I, I prefer not those things. Are they, are they just antisocial things? Fyodor Dostoevsky said, if God does not exist, then everything is permissible. But God is here. And God is not silent. God speaks to us through His Word, the Scripture. Truth comes, Jesus tells us, from hearing God's Word and from obeying God's Word. In John chapter 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, If you continue in My Word, literally, if you abide in My Word, if you remain in My Word, if you live in My Word, if you continue in My Word, you are truly My disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. That's an Exodus promise. Remember, Exodus means there's a way out. Truth is a way out. And Jesus says it comes through hearing and obeying My Word. So this is the work of phase two. It's wrestling with God's Word in the face of life's uncertainties. We come to God's Word not just to look for something that will comfort us. We come to God's Word to look for something that will challenge us. Otherwise, we're just reading our beliefs into the book. Rather, we have to let the book read us, challenge us, and change us. And it's as this book does that it begins to make us trustworthy. We no longer do whatever is right in our own eyes. We ourselves are no longer the center of our own moral compass. And I want to say in this moment in our culture right now, it's so easy to grab the moral high ground. We, we call it outrage, a sense of righteous indignation. And this is so common when we're hurt, um, it, we, we become really clear about what's right and wrong in relationship to ourselves, though. You hurt me, you're wrong, I'm right. We become the center of our own moral compass. And this reinforces our divides. We retreat into our tribal identities where we find ourselves reinforced in our own sense of who's good, who's bad, who's in, who's out. And Joseph doesn't do this because he's obeying God's Word. He doesn't judge Potiphar's wife. He doesn't join Potiphar's wife. But he does respond to what God tells him is the truth. 
we can picture him in some back room in that house just wrestling with what's right? What should I do? She's commanding me, but is the culture right? Is she right? Am I right? No, God is the truth and the source of truth for him, obedience. Well, those who will obey God will pay a price for doing so, and Joseph pays a price. He runs away one day from Potiphar's wife. She grabs his garment, it tears, and he flees without it. She accuses him of rape using her influence, and he's thrown in a dungeon where he enters into the third phase for trust builders. The third phase for trust builders is service. Service. This is the action that addresses the distrust in other people. Our service. People keep stealing from Joseph, but wherever he goes, he keeps serving. I don't quite understand this. He serves even when he's a slave in Potiphar's house, so much that Potiphar says, hey, I'm going to put you in charge of everything. He serves when he ends up in the, in the dungeon. The chief da- da- jailer puts him in charge of the whole prison. He keeps using his gift with other prisoners. He serves them as he's an interpreter of, of dreams, and they have dreams, and he serves. I think it would be so easy for me, if I were there in Joseph's shoes, to say, oh my gosh, these are my captors. They've stolen my life from me. I don't owe them anything. Maybe to think about revenge or escape. These thoughts apparently don't cross Joseph's mind. But he serves. And he keeps building trust to the point that the very highest ruler in the land, the Pharaoh himself, entrusts the kingdom to Joseph. Is that trustworthy? You shall not steal, says the eighth word. Interesting thing about this commandment, the penalty for disobeying it is restitution. Not retribution, restitution. You were hurt, don't hurt back. Make it right. We get this in in subsequent passages of Scripture that elaborate on the eighth word. It's like what we would call tort law today, which is making things right. This is actually the basis of our tort law. And the degree to which you make restitution depends on the, the, the degree of intent and the damage that's done. So in Exodus 22, we read that if you lose another person's animal, then you restore onefold. If you steal it from them, you restore twofold. If you eat the animal or sell the animal, then it's four or fivefold, depending on the kind of animal. It's restitution. Make it right. Restore things. Now, this is what we see through Joseph's service, an attempt to bring restoration. By the way, there is one exception to this, and that is forced slavery. We read in Exodus 21, verse 16, whoever kidnaps a person, whether that person has been sold or is still held in possession, shall be put to death. This is the one exception. And I have to say that those in America who used the Bible to justify slavery were absolutely wrong because the Bible categorically condemns slavery uh, in the eighth word and in this elaboration, Exodus 21, 16. People who say, oh, the Bible justifies uh, slavery, American slavery, weren't being obedient to the word. They were trying to make the word obedient to them. 
And I also just want to say, as your pastor, I know these are really hard times and there's a lot of stress in our homes. And if you find yourself in a moment right now where you're unsafe, I want you to get out and get help. It's not okay to allow yourself to suffer and to be hurt and harmed. This could be emotional abuse, physical abuse, an economic crisis. Call us and let us help you. Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl says, they can take everything away from you except your freedom to choose your own response. And to choose your own response is the work of phase three. It's the struggle to serve others, even when that might seem hard. To do the work of phase three, we want to ask ourselves questions like these. Who is my neighbor? What do they need? What gifts do I have? And for the follower of Jesus, even how can I love my enemy? There's a yard sign in my neighborhood that says, do something today that makes you happy. And the word you is in large letters. And I think, I'm not sure this is the solution. I wonder if this isn't more like the problem that, that people in well-to-do neighborhoods just continue to ask themselves, how can I make myself happy with my time and my energy and my financial resources? Somebody who's going to earn the trust of somebody else is going to have to be somebody who learns how to put the interests of another ahead of their own interests. I want to take out a, a marker and cross out the word you and write, do something today that makes someone else happy. Serve. Might even make us happier. As Jesus teaches, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Joseph could have looked at these 12 years and, and just said, this, this is just a lost season of my life. The whole period is lost. Could have been 12 years in prison. But they're not lost. And they're not lost precisely because he chooses to serve. He doesn't get restitution from the Egyptians or from his brothers. But notice this. He gets restitution from God. That's how the story ends. And all the way through there's this refrain that keeps following him from one disaster to the next. The Lord gave him favor. And by the way, the word favor is the Hebrew word for grace. Grace keeps following Joseph wherever he goes. And it becomes his experience through service. Every place he serves keeps leading him to the next place until one day the Pharaoh has his own dream. And Joseph is remembered as one who has the gift of interpreting dreams. And then Joseph's put in charge because he serves. That will move him to the fourth phase um, just becoming the second most powerful person in Egypt actually isn't the goal uh, for Joseph. There's more. The fourth and final phase for trust builders is worship. This is the experience that transforms us all with God's trustworthiness. Worship. What we're doing right now. You see, Joseph's brothers, uh, they come down to Egypt because there's a famine in Canaan. They need food and they hear there's food in Egypt because their brother, unbeknownst to them, has so wisely cared for the material resources of that nation. They come before Joseph in the royal court and they don't recognize him, perhaps because of the years of pain now etched in Joseph's face. Joseph, after interacting with them, takes out a silver cup and he puts his own royal cup in their bags and sends them back home so that he can accuse them of stealing, of breaking the eighth 
word. Why does Joseph do this? I have pondered this for years. I, I think I understand now. I think it's because he wants to see if his brothers will sell another brother to the Egyptians just like they did years ago to him. Right? Joseph now is changed. He's a new man. And he wonders, have my brothers changed? Is trust in this family possible? You shall not steal, says the eighth word. Those words make us imagine. Imagine a world in which doors are not locked, in which keys are left in the ignition of cars, in which the boundaries on our bodies are honored, in which debts are pardoned, in which a promise is always capped and a scale is always true, in which workers are able to harvest and reap the reward of all of their labor, in which no one lacks any good thing, and everyone's good name is honored and respected by all, in which the resources of creation are stewarded and protected, and the welfare of the whole is put ahead of the welfare of the individual, and every neighbor is loved because God is loved above all. This is what God wants to give us in the gift of trust, the gift that is behind the eighth word. And it breaks into view all of a sudden in this wonderful narrative in a moment of worship. God breaks in, into this circle of brothers who are now finally bowing down before their brother Joseph, who's been raised up to such heights. And out of that crowd steps one brother in particular named Judah. Did you know that Judah, the Hebrew word Judah, his name means let him be praised. In other words, his name means worship. Let God be praised. Judah, like a great defense attorney, rising before the bar, now comes before his unrecognizable brother Joseph. And he gives one of the greatest speeches ever given. He says, oh, Joseph, your majesty, God has found out our guilt, but don't take our brother Benjamin, take me. Take my life for his. Take me as your slave and give him freedom because this young lad has a father in Canaan and if he should lose this child, it will break his heart. At that moment, Joseph can't take it anymore. Joseph, the text tells us, wept. He wept so loudly that all of Egypt and the Pharaoh's court could hear him weeping. He suddenly reveals himself to his brothers and takes them into his arms. Because at last, trust has been rebuilt. And it happened in a moment of worship. The work of the fourth phase is the struggle to worship a God who can be trusted no matter what we're going through. Joseph says it so well to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, which is worth putting on their fridge. He says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended it for harm. I understand. He forgives them. He says, I want you to know, even at your worst, God was working to, intent to bring about good for me, for you, for all people. Wow. And they worship. Now, I have no idea what will happen this Tuesday. Maybe you don't either. 
or beyond. But I do know this, no matter what happens, God will still be in charge. This God will still be in control. Jesus will still sit on his throne and he will still be in the business of bringing good out of harm in every way. This is a God we can trust. If you've never put your trust in God, I want to invite you to do so today. It makes all the difference in a person's life. Judah himself, let God be praised, invites us to place our trust in Jesus. Do you know that another name for Jesus in the book of Revelation is the Lion of Judah? Because this first Judah tells us something about Jesus. This Jesus who invites us to him today, stands in our place. He says before the Father, God has found out our guilt, but he defends you. He doesn't judge you, doesn't accuse you. He defends you. He says to the powers that enslave us, don't take her, take me. Don't take him, take me. Because she has a father in heaven. And if anything should happen to her, it would break the father's heart. Friends, say yes to Jesus. It's so easy to do, but makes all the difference. And when we do, we, we stand then in Jesus' place before this loving Father for all of eternity. And why would we not do this? This is a God that we can trust. They say that he died hung between two thieves. This is the company that he chooses, those of us who have broken the eighth word And look at what he's done for us. They stole his robe. They put a sponge on a stick and he tasted the bitterness of gall. Saying, not my will but thine, he was obedient to the Father. And he carried the cross for us in service. And when they lifted him up for our salvation, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit as a great and final act of obedience. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like Joseph's brothers, we bow down. We bow down before a human who is also a God, who has stepped out of eternity into time and space to claim our place as sinners, that we might claim his place as righteous We pray for all who are listening right now, near and far, that your Holy Spirit would impress upon them the invitation of Jesus to come home, to come home and find forgiveness, to come home and find grace for our wounds, to come home and find the assurance of everlasting life and a mission in this life to be trust builders in a world that is so desperate for rebuilt trust. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.